Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, the podcast where we look at God's good news for imperfect people. This is season one, episode 11, and we're on to the story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Here's a question to get us started. How good are you at making excuses? How good are you at making excuses? I mean, we all do it from time to time, but some people do it with a real flair. And you have to admire the people who come up with really creative excuses like these, which are actual excuses taken from insurance claim forms about auto accidents. Here's the first. I thought my window was down, but I found out it was up when I put my head through it. I mean, that's really using your head, right? Here's another one. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve several times before I hit him. Well, at least he's persistent. Or this. The pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran him down. Now that just seems to be a bit cruel, but not uncommon, especially if you've lived in places like New Jersey or Boston. But this is my favorite one. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. Now guys, be honest, we can all identify with that one. It's definitely not his fault. Well, in today's podcast, we're going to be looking at the way one woman tried to make excuses for not being ready or willing to take that step of faith and turn towards Jesus. But also, there's a present-day application that might have escaped your notice in the past, and if you're not familiar with the story, that we'll look at at the end. Now, there are many legitimate reasons why people might hesitate in turning their lives over to Christ. There are serious questions that can and should be asked, and if you're a follower of Christ, we should be willing to try and answer those questions with love and respect. We should always be open to sincere questions. In fact, we should invite those questions from sincere seekers. I'd encourage you to do some personal study on the common questions frequently asked by spiritual seekers so that you're ready to have a conversation, you know, intelligently, sensitively with them. The Apostle Peter gives us this encouragement in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, But in your hearts, Revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's great advice. Be prepared with gentleness and respect. Conversation should not be your wrestling match. The goal is not to win an argument, but to communicate grace. And one suggestion, I really like a book written by Mark Middleberg called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. It's a great resource to help you be prepared, and he kind of lists the top nine questions that uh, secular people might ask, and here's the list. Uh, First of all, what makes you so sure that God exists at all, especially when you can't see him, hear him, or touch him? Two, didn't evolution put God out of a job? Why rely on any religion in an age of science and knowledge? Three, why trust the Bible, a book based on myths that's full of contradictions and mistakes? Four, everyone knows Jesus was a good man and a wise teacher, but why try to make him into the Son of God, too? Five, how could a good God allow so much evil, pain, and suffering, or does he simply not care? Six, why is abortion such a line in the sand for so many Christians? Why can't I be left alone to make my own choices about my own body? Seven, Why do you condemn homosexuality when it's clear that God made gays and that he loves all people the same? Eight, how can I trust in Christianity when so many Christians are hypocrites? And nine, why should I think that heaven really exists and that God sends people to hell? 
So those are the top nine questions. They're great, even uncomfortable questions. But Christians need to be open and willing to engage with those questions with the people who need solid answers. So I highly recommend Mark Middleberg's uh, book to you so that you can become better equipped to engage in this kind of dialogue, but in a healthy and respectful way. Maybe you should get together with a few other Christians, read that book together. It will definitely stimulate a lot of conversation. Okay. In the last two podcasts, we spoke a lot about grace, God's undeserved love offered to us through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. How even though grace is freely offered to every single person on the planet, we also saw that many folks refuse the offer, thinking that they don't need God, thinking they don't need a Savior, that there's another way besides Jesus, or that they can earn their way into God's favor through trying to be good or good enough. People resist God's grace through Christ because it requires that we bend the knee of human pride and surrender our wills to His. And there's something in the human heart that just resists the idea of that surrender. We think we can be self-sufficient. We think we can save ourselves. We didn't take Jesus seriously, and that's when the excuses come in. Now, making excuses as to why Jesus is or isn't the Son of God, uh, making excuses about why a person can or won't follow Jesus, that is actually nothing new. In fact, Jesus gives us a model of that exact kind of conversation is in, in his encounter with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. So I'm going to read just the first 14 verses. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And then in parentheses, John adds, His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then in parentheses again, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with. And the well is very deep. How can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So it's about noon. The sun is high. Jesus is tired and hungry, and he sends the disciples off to a nearby town to get some carry-out falafel or something like that. His feet hurt. He's thirsty, so he sits down by the community well. And when a woman of Samaria comes to the well to draw water, Jesus says to her, please give me a drink. That's what starts this conversation. But to get what's really going on here, you have to know a little bit of the history, a little context so that we can understand what's taking place. In the year 722 B.C., the nation of Assyria invaded Israel and conquered it. 
The victorious Assyrians took many of the Jews back to Assyria as captives and slaves, and then transplanted some Assyrians back into Israel as colonists. Over the decades, the Jews who remained behind in Israel began to intermarry with the incoming foreigners, and these interracial marriages produced a new group of people called the Samaritans. When the descendants of the Jewish exiles then returned to Israel under Nehemiah and Ezra, the Samaritans offered to help rebuild the temple because they still worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews, however, refused their help. The Jews despised the Samaritans, saw them as traitors and as half-breeds, said that they were spiritually unclean and rejected by God. So they wouldn't have anything to do with the Samaritans. And that snub, that rejection began a centuries-long feud between the Jews and the Samaritans that continued to Jesus' day. The Jews and the Samaritans even fought a war against each other in 129 BC, and the Jews were still bitter about, about that because at the end of the war, Samaritans desecrated the Jerusalem temple by scattering animal bones inside. There was a bitter, intense hatred that went both ways between the Jews and the Samaritans, and they avoided each other like the plague. They didn't work together, wouldn't walk next to each other down the street, wouldn't speak to each other, and certainly would never share the same water bottle. And so when traveling from northern Galilee to southern Judea, Jews would often take the long way around just so they didn't have to pass through the middle ground of Samaria. But not Jesus. He takes his disciples right into the heart of enemy territory, at a crossroads well where they stop called Jacob's Well. And it's sacred to both the Jews and uh, the Samaritans because even though they hated each other, they both loved their common ancestor, Jacob. Jacob was considered to be the father of both their peoples. Also, water was such a scarcity that wells were considered sacred places where people could go without fear, as long as you took turns. The obligation of hospitality was almost a sacred concept to both Jews and Samaritans, so the well area was a neutral zone, and both sides had to play nice. So the first thing to notice is that Jesus meets the woman on common ground. He met her at a neutral place, a place that was safe for both of them. And since the well is 100 feet deep, and he's got nothing to drink with, he asks to drink from her cup. And she is shocked, just absolutely shocked. And we begin to learn that this is a story with many layers of tension in it. There's a thick layer of racial tension because of the centuries of hatred between their peoples. Jews and Samaritans did not worship the same way. They had common roots, but divided long ago. So each had their own sacred sites and rituals, and they equally felt disdain for the other. Just by looking at him, she knows he's a Jew, They're the way he's dressed, his accent, his mannerisms. In her world, her bias would lead her to believe that all Jews are hateful, rude, and not to be trusted. And then there's a sexual tension, because a Jewish man would never have spoken to a woman in public who was not a member of his extended family, much less a Samaritan woman of any type. And a Jewish man would never have used a woman's cup to drink. It just wasn't done. That's why in verse 9, the woman says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? I mean, she's thinking, you got to be kidding me. You're going to put your male Jewish lips to this, my female Samaritan cup. Why, we wouldn't even eat at the same lunch counter. You wouldn't spit on me if my hair was on fire. So there was racial and sexual tension but as well social tension if you add the fact that this woman had a serious reputation. 
We discover she's had five husbands and she's shacked up with a potential number six. Five husbands and living with number six. That's crazy even by today's standards. But here's the wabi-sabi part. Jesus sees that there's a lot of heartache and grief and possibly scandal in her life. Five husbands is a lot of grief. That's a lot of brokenness. That's a lot of pain. And don't you think all those deaths brought some stigma to her as a repeated widow? Who would be stupid enough to marry her? You might as well start digging your own grave. So now she's shacked up with someone. And as we see later in the text, everyone in the village knows. So no decent person would ever talk to her in public. I mean, that's why she's going to draw water at the middle of the day. Most people would have done that early in the morning. That's when the sun was down and it wouldn't have been so hot. But she's out there by herself. No community around her in the middle of the day. No decent man would have talked to her. The only men who talk to her are probably those who are looking to use her. And I'm sure she could spot that kind of man a mile away. So Jesus is risking his reputation just by talking with her. But she's also wary of him. All these little things are social clues that set off alarms inside her head. All Jews hate Samaritans. That's what she's saying to Jesus, is that you and I are different. We can't connect like this. It's forbidden. I don't know you, but I automatically distrust you. How could you possibly pretend to treat me with any kind of respect or kindness when you Jews think we're all dirty and unclean and cursed by God? She continues showing her bias down in verse 20 when she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. You people. I mean, that's such a terrible phrase, isn't it? A number of years ago at the congregation I served in New Jersey, a Korean family was having a baby baptized in our traditional service in the sanctuary, and many of their family members and friends came to see the ceremony. And I heard the dear older white usher who seated them say, my, there are a lot of you people here today. You people. I mean, that church lady, she never even knew that what she said was offensive. She wasn't conscious of her own bias. She never would have said that to a Caucasian family. I was mortified. I apologized as best I could, but I think the damage was done. The Samaritan woman is quick to point out what she considers to be the reason why she and Jesus cannot connect with each other across a cup of coffee. We worship this way, you worship that way. My dad told me that to get close to God, you go to that mountain, to Gerizim. That's where our temple is. He got that from his dad and his dad before him. It's part of my history. It's part of our heritage, our background. It's how I was raised. And you people, the reason you do what you do is because your dad told you because his dad told him. We've got two different histories, two different backgrounds. We were just raised on different sides of the track, Jesus So you just stay on your side, and I'll stay on mine. She doesn't know anything about Jesus, but in her mind, she's got him all figured out, and she is blinded by her bias. Jesus doesn't go along with that. Everything he does goes contrary to her preconceptions. Everything he does takes her by surprise because, first of all, he does treat her with respect. He treats her as just another human being. He doesn't acknowledge the racial differences and the barriers that history and culture erected. He doesn't doesn't play by those rules. He does not act like what he thinks a Jewish man will act like. He doesn't take the bait to get in any kind of racially charged or gender or social or religious confrontation. He doesn't get into that debate. Instead, he gives her an invitation in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, And who it was who you were talking to, who said, give me the drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so she's also totally intrigued by Jesus's invitation to discover this new kind of life that he described as living water. She wants to know more, but she's also reluctant to go too far down that road. Crossing all those racial, gender, social, and religious barriers isn't easy. So her excuses appear. She does what so many people do when Jesus starts to get a little too close to their hearts. She pulls out the stops. Aren't all religions basically the same? She throws that card down on the table like it's going to trump whatever Jesus has to say. This is what she says in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Hear what she's saying? Jesus, you've got your mountain. My people have my mountain. Potato, potato, you know, what's the big deal? All roads lead to the top. It's a very modern statement. Don't all religions basically teach the same thing? They're just different roads to the top of the same mountain. Doesn't matter how you get there. Doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you're sincere, all roads lead to the top of the mountain. I think I'm sure you've heard that idea expressed. Sure, it's one of the most common ways people try to deflect having to make a decision about Jesus. It's a common way to sidetrack the conversation, divert attention from the main issue of dealing with Jesus himself. It's a curveball that they hope will throw the conversation off track. But if you think about it, it's such a silly analogy. It can only be said by people who've never actually been to the top of a mountain. You go up Pike's Peak, there's only one road to the top. Otherwise, you're going right over the edge. You climb Mount Everest, there's only one trail that gets you the last hundred yards to the summit. A few summers ago, Don and I went to Glacier National Park in Montana. There's only one road through that stretch of the Rocky Mountains, a twisty, curvy road, nail-biter called Going to the Sun Road. Now, you can try and find another path through the high mountains. You can try and do that, and they'll find your body in the spring when the snow thaws. All roads do not lead to the same destination. Some roads will get you partially there. Some roads will get you lost and confused. Some roads are deadly. Of course, there are some overlap in all religions when it comes to basic moral teachings like, you know, don't steal, don't murder. There are some common ethical teachings, but in no religion are those things the core of what is believed. Religions may be similar in peripheral issues, but they are in no way similar in their core teachings. And when people try to lump all religions together as the same thing, it's actually an insult to all religions, not just to the Christian faith. It is actually an insult to all religions when their distinctives are so callously dismissed. It's not intellectually honest to say that all religions are the same. It's a curveball, an easy way out for people who don't want to think too deeply about who Jesus really is. And there's a second evasion that's similar to the all roads lead to the top of the mountain. And that is that all religions tell us some truth about God, and so we shouldn't take any one religion more seriously than any other. They're all partially right, so let's just mix them all together because they all worship the same thing ultimately. Well, that's called syncretism, mixing everything together in kind of a theological mush. And the standard illustration used to show this, and I've probably talked about this before, is the story of the blind men who are feeling an elephant for the very first time. One blind man touches the elephant's trunk and says, an elephant is like a giant snake. Second blind man feels the elephant's big leg and says, no, an elephant is like a tree. And the blind man at the rear feeling the end of the tail says, you're wrong, an elephant is, is like a little mouse. The point being that it's silly to think that any one religion can accurately describe the totality of God. So no one religion is any truer than any other. 
and it doesn't matter which one you follow. But that is also a false analogy, because the way the story goes, the blind men are not describing a real elephant. They're describing a statue of an elephant, something totally static. A real elephant isn't going to just stand there. A real inter elephant interacts with its environment. And that interaction will reveal something about what that elephant is like. So the guy handling the trunk is going to think very differently when water comes shooting out of the elephant's trunk into his face. Or when the elephant decides to stomp on the guy who is hugging his leg. I mean, trees don't act like that. And I really hate to think what happens to the guy at the rear holding up the tail. I mean, he's in for a big, nasty surprise. A real elephant moves and interacts. And in that way, the elephant will reveal something about its own nature. God is not a static statue that we get to examine. He's a God who has chosen to act, who has chosen to interact with his creation. And God has chosen to reveal himself to us so that we can know exactly what he is like. God's self-revelation is what the Bible is all about. God taking the initiative to reveal himself to us. This is what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I, am he. I mean, you can't get any clearer than that. Jesus claims to be God with skin on, God revealing his very self so that we can know him. And this is a claim that cannot be pushed aside or hidden or ignored. You can't say Jesus is a good religious teacher without confronting the things he actually taught. We can't gloss over how direct and clear Jesus is here or the other many places in Scripture that teach the exact same thing, like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. The exact representation of His being, that's Jesus. Not a little bit like God, the exact representation of His being. And that reality requires a response. That reality requires a decision not an excuse. Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis famously points out that there are only three logical options when it comes to what we think about Jesus. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or he's the Lord. Lewis put it like this in his classic book, Mere Christianity, and I quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. To say what Jesus said, to teach what Jesus taught, he was either crazy, a con man, or he was and is the Christ. And that choice is what people don't want to face. The main struggle we face in communicating the gospel to people today is that people would rather keep the whole thing vague and unfocused. But Jesus doesn't let us do it. Just as with the Samaritan woman, he pushed to the point of decision. And at that point, not to decide is to decide. Not to decide is to decide. It's a no. It's like standing on the platform at a train station trying to decide whether or not you're going to board the train. There's a time to waver when you can waffle to try and decide, but there will come a time when the door closes and the train leaves the station. And at that point, not deciding is a decision. 
and the decision has consequences. So part of the story is bringing this woman into a new relationship with God through this life-changing encounter with Jesus. That's the core issue. But there's going to be wider issues because Jesus, I mean, he's like throwing a stone into a pond. The ripples spread outward. One of those ripples has to do with helping the woman reconnect with her community, and that will be the topic of the next episode of this uh, podcast. But the ripple effect of what Jesus is doing here is he's confronting the woman's inner sense of racial bias. This is a story that is filled with racial tension, and that's why it's such an important story for our times as we struggle with the sins of prejudice and racism. So think with me for a moment about one of the events that ignited the recent conundrum about race in America, Ferguson, Missouri. For years to come, two different stories will be told about what happened on the night of August 9th, 2014. Two different narratives about what took place in an encounter between a police officer and a young man. One story will tell of a black teenager who, while trying to surrender, was shot and killed by a trigger-happy white cop, and the community rose up in civil disobedience against a racist system that oppresses minorities and devalues the lives of young black men. The other story will tell of a young man who stood six foot five, weighed 289 pounds, the size of an NFL lineman, who had just committed a strong-arm robbery at a convenience store, and when stopped for walking down the middle of a busy street, he punched a police officer in the face through the open window of his police cruiser and reached for the officer's gun. The ensuing fight spilled out of the police car onto the street, and fearing for his life, the officer shot and killed his attacker. The riots, they were caused by hoodlums and agitators just looking for an excuse to loot and burn local businesses. Okay, those are two very different descriptions of the same event and a wide disparity about what happened on that night. So where would you place yourself on that continuum between believing this was an act of cold-blooded murder by a racist white cop or believing it was an act of justified self-defense by a police officer? Where would you place yourself on that continuum? Where would you see yourself? Because where you place yourself between the racist act and a justifiable self-defense, it actually will tell us more about you than about what really happened on that hot August night. Because none of us were there, right? I mean, none of us were there. I, I don't think we have any eyewitnesses that I know of, personally. So we all have formed our opinions about what happened based on second or third or even fourth-hand information. We listened to the news, we saw interviews, we read articles, we watched videos, we heard stories... And then we unconsciously assign levels of credibility to all those various sources of information. Do we think this news channel is reliable? Do we trust these witnesses or are they skewing their testimony? Do they have an agenda? We believe some reports, we don't believe others based on our past experiences and our beliefs about police officers and racism and the behavior of young black men and a whole host of other beliefs. And we dismiss information that doesn't fit our narrative. In other words, we all have a bias. Even before the first news broadcast, we already have a predisposition to believe or disbelieve what we hear based on what's going on in our internal world. That's our bias, and every person carries bias. Black, white, Asian, Latino, indigenous peoples, it doesn't matter who you are. It's unavoidable. We all carry a certain level of bias into every experience and every relationship, no matter how objective we think we are. The only window we have on the world out there is from the world inside our heads. 
So everything we see and do is evaluated by our inner bias. That's the myth of, you know, or that's called the myth of objectivity, that we can somehow separate our own life experience and history from how we evaluate what's going on in the world around us. Folks, we all have some level of implicit bias. We all do. And that's the beginning of racism. These automatic unconscious things that come up that make you react a certain way. It's one thing to talk about racism and reconciliation on a macro level, the big picture for our nation and systems and whole groups of people. But it's another thing to talk about it on a micro level, the small picture down to the individual, down to me and you and what's going on in our internal world and our bias. I believe Jesus wants us to look at our own bias and begin to confront it because that's what Jesus did all the time. Jesus constantly confronted misguided perceptions. Not always about racism, but yes, sometimes about racism. And that's what we see going on in John 4, how Jesus confronted racial bias because it not only separates people from each other, it also separates people from a living relationship with God. When people operate out of their bias, they're operating out of preconceived ideas that are not rooted in Christ. Whenever you label a whole group of people, whenever you paint a group of people with all the same brush, that's bias. Whenever you think all blank are blank, that's bias. It's rooted in culture, history, family, experience. It's what you think is true, but your information may not be accurate. Your truth may not, in fact, be the truth. Our culture has kind of lost the idea that there is a thing called the truth, an objective standard by which reality is measured. We have so individualized truth to your truth and my truth, and everybody has their own truth. That way of thinking actually contributes to racism because it gives people a way to justify what they believe. It's my truth, so who do you tell me I'm wrong? But as Christians, we believe there is objective truth, and it's God's point of view on any subject. So just because you were raised a certain way, once the way you were raised disagrees with what God says, how you were raised, you got to look at that and say, you know, I want to be different from that. When your beliefs go against the kingdom of God and God himself, then it's your ideas that need to change. You can't say as an excuse, well, this is me, this is my background, this is what I, how I was raised. False thinking definitely gets passed on from one generation to another, especially when it comes to our deep, even unexpressed racial feelings. Things get passed down decade after decade and ideas become ingrained. And we carry unconscious bias against some other group or skin color, just because that's the way we were raised. And that's not just between blacks and whites. The centuries-old conflicts in India between Hindus and Muslims, the genocide going on in Miramar, uh, what we call Burma, against the Rohingya people, the treatment of the Kurds and the Yazidi people in Iraq and Syria, Armenians versus the Turks, the Russians and the Ukrainians, the persecution of the Uyghur people in China, bias, prejudice, racism. It's not just an American problem, it is a human problem. And it will always be until we individually place ourselves under the authority of God's word and God's truth and recognize that his truth overrides color, history, and race. Now, this doesn't happen on its own. It needs to be intentional. And that's why we have to hold up a mirror to ourselves and take an honest look at our pockets of prejudice, the places where we consciously and even unconsciously show a racial bias. Dr. David Anderson, a noted author on race relations, coined the phrase, distance demonizes. Distance demonizes. From a distance, it's easy 
to demonize people, people who are a different color or culture, people who are on the other side of the debate. As long as we stay comfortably apart, we never have to confront the hidden bias that we have at work under the surface. And examining, confronting our own bias, that's not just an academic exercise. It has real life consequences. And then we have to close the distance. Close the distance. We've got to walk across the room and meet the other person on the other side. And that's exactly what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. He closed the distance between their two worlds. I served as a volunteer police chaplain for many years, and I've gotten permission to tell this true story. A white police officer was on patrol in a tough neighborhood in Plainfield, New Jersey, is it about two in the morning, when a call came over the radio of an armed robbery, robbery with shots fired. And the suspect's vehicle was a white or silver Toyota, tinted windows heading south on a certain road. Well, the police officer happened to be heading north on that same road, just a couple blocks away from the incident. And he flipped on his lights, and as he approached the next intersection, a white Toyota was coming towards him, turned hard right at the intersection, right in front of him, without slowing down. And he thought, okay, here we go. His adrenaline was pumping. Chase was on. To his surprise, the car pulled over as soon as he got behind it. As he got out of his patrol car and approached the, the vehicle, he had his hand on his gun. The car was bumping with loud rap music. The tinted windows made it so he couldn't really see how many people might be in the car. The officer can kind of feel his heart racing. The driver's window goes down and the cop could see the driver, a young black man. He was just pounding on the steering wheel with both hands, pounding on it and swearing and cursing at the top of his lungs over the loud, over the loud music. And Every expletive you can imagine, he's saying about the police, just out of control, pounding the steering wheel. And the police officer's fingering his gun, wondering, okay, is this guy armed? Is he going to pull out a gun? What's going to happen? And so his heart is like beating out of his chest. Now, he's a weapons instructor for the police, but he's never had to fire his weapon in the line of duty. He's even a member of the SWAT team, but he's alone with an angry, seemingly out of control young black man. He cautiously approaches the driver's door, just the driver in the car. And he asks the driver to turn off the music, asks to see his license and registration. The young man gives it to him, but continues his barrage of expletives against the police officer. You effing cops, you're always stopping me over and over again. He's just beside himself. All the time, the police officer is watching his hands, looking inside the car, looking to see if there's a gun, keeping his hand on his pistol in case there's one false move. The officer was just about to ask the driver to step out of the car when a call came over the radio that other officers had captured the suspects from the robbery. So he kind of let out a sigh of relief, but he still doesn't know what's going on with this guy and why the guy driver so agitated. So he just looked guilty of something. So the officer gives the driver back his license and registration, still with his hand on his gun. He says kind of stiffly, sorry, sir, just to let you know, we had a robbery with shots fired Call nearby. Your car matched the description of the suspect vehicle. Have a safe evening. Then the officer goes back and gets into his car. But the adrenaline is still pumping. I mean, that takes a while to settle down. But then the young man, he gets out of his car, which you never want to do, and starts walking back towards the police car, which you never want to do. And the police officer's going, uh-oh, what's this? This is not good. So his cop's got his hand on his gun again. Rolls down the window. The young man comes up to the window leans in and says, man, I just want to apologize. I was out of control. I didn't know you were on a gunshot call, but I'm on my way home from work. I got stopped by a white cop in Cranford. 
I got stopped by a white cop in Scotch Plains, and then I got stopped by you three times in one night just because I'm a young black man driving late at night, and I just couldn't take it anymore. So the police officer gets out of the car, and standing there in the street without saying anything, the young man just spontaneously puts his arms around the cop and hugged him. And the police officer hugged him back. They just needed a moment to be human with each other. There were so many ways that car stop could have gone wrong. Bias from the police officer, assuming the young black man was a dangerous criminal, that he was facing a life-threatening situation. Bias from the young driver, assuming he got pulled over by another racist white cop for driving while black, and venting all his pent-up anger. Bias believing all young black men are suspects. Bias believing all cops are out to get me. Both had bias at work in their thinking, and boy, could that have ended so badly, when in reality, they just needed a moment to be human with each other. Jesus closed the distance with the Samaritan woman. He found a safe place to meet with her, and he flipped the script on her because her racial bias was blocking the flow of God's grace into her heart. That's what racial bias does. It blocks the flow of God's grace into the heart. Jesus made her look at herself and her life in new ways. Can you be brave enough to let Jesus do that in your life? Can you be brave enough to examine your own heart and root out the places where bias separates you from God? Root out the places where bias separates you from other people? And let Jesus lead you to the place where God's living water flows inside of you because you trust in him. Have a great week. 